Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Catherine Bab Magera is a journalist who's contributed to the Wall Street Journal, Slate, CNBC, NBC News, and many others. Her first book, which is tremendous, Poe for Your Problems, I highly recommend it, was published by Hatchet in 2021. A frequent podcast guest with appearances on NPR, The Daily Stoic, and Life Hackers Upgrade. She lives in Richmond, Virginia, with her incredible two-year-old. Kat Bab, thank you so much for being here today and for taking the time and for making a child-free zone for us to have some conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's no this way no two-year-old yelling in the background. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm pretty immature, so I think I'll compensate for that a little bit, and we'll <laughs> we'll have plenty of screaming, yelling, and something like that. And we were talking before about our mutual admiration for Robert Greene, for Stephen Pressfield. As an author, lots of times, because I asked Robert Greene this, and he said there was no epiphanic moment for him where it just like struck. But can you tell us as an author, what was an author or a statement or even a book that just punched you and said, damn, I want to write something like that. This is something that really speaks to me. Yeah, I definitely had one of those, um, or maybe a couple over a lifetime, each of which spoke to the other and built on the other. I think it'll sound familiar to a lot of people, certainly a lot of writers, artists, anyone who's on a journey. I've wanted this since I was a little kid. I always wanted to be a writer. It gave me this clarity of purpose from about the age of eight on, which is, as we know, a, a blessing and a curse. It's a lot of focus, but it's also a lot of self-imposed pressure. Anyway, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which some people will know is Poe's hometown as well, Edgar Allan Poe's hometown. He grew up here, of course, just about 200 years before I did in a quite different city. Uh, this would be the early 1800s. Anyway, uh, he's a big local character. We learn a lot about him in school, maybe earlier than other American students and other world students would. So my fourth grade teacher on Halloween, it was, uh, she had us put our heads down on our desk so that we could listen to her as she read The Raven. And for a little kid, it was almost, it was like I was experiencing art for the first time, like the power of literary art, what words can do, what you can achieve in that form. And I mean, The, the Raven is now justifiably one of the most famous poems of all time. It has these dark rhythms, this undertow of sadness and deep feeling. And even a little kid can get that. So I went home that day from school and I started typing on our family computer in my parents' bedroom. You know, you had just one in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, I thought about, I, I want to write novels. I want to be a literary artist. And then, you know, I grew up and I, I read most of Poe when I was still in elementary school. And I still can't believe that my parents let me read it because a lot of people know it's extremely dark. It's it is. about physical torture. It's about so much death. Um, and 
darkness, depression, anxiety, sadness, extreme psychological states. Um, and there's a huge contingent in academia who think of him as low culture and not worthy of serious study, though there are, are post-scholars. So it was about 2016, so a long time past my childhood, when I've had depressive episodes my entire life, just episodes of in, intense darkness. I think the time, the first time I was put on an antidepressant was when I was eight, so lifelong. I had one in 2016. I just found myself slipping into it. I couldn't stop it. It was really just like sliding down a steep hell. Um, and it, it ended up getting so bad, you know, that I was, I wasn't able to eat or sleep. I had to take mental health leave from my job. And it's a difficult conversation to have with your HR department. Like I'm literally too ill to work. Fortunately, they were extremely understanding. So I have found myself with about a month of downtime, just lying around in bed or in my bathtub trying to survive. And I found myself wanting to read Edgar Allan Poe for the first time since maybe about the fourth grade. And I still had my childhood copy of The Complete Tales of Mystery and Imagination, this faux leather, <laughs> faux fancy edition of his. And I cracked it open. I was in my bathtub and I uh, started reading The Pit and the Pendulum. And the first line is, I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony. And I just, I had tears instantly on my face before I even knew what was happening. It spoke to me so deeply. A lot of people will know that story. It's very famous. It's about the characters being tortured by the Spanish Inquisition and the torture keeps changing. He's in this kind of chamber in which these extreme things keep happening to him. He's being swarmed by rats the walls are heating up and moving in or there's a pit opening under him or there's a scythe whistling over him. And I, as I read the story, I suddenly understood in a way a child can't understand that right. Poe is speaking to two different levels of experience. He's presenting this very commercial horror story and he's also talking about psychological torture in a way that really describes the experience beyond just a literal description. You know, this metaphor really builds it out and expresses so much about the experience. And I felt, this can sound kind of weird, but I felt so seen and I felt like someone understood what I was going through. So I went down this rabbit hole with Poe. Suddenly I found I could pay attention to something, which was itself such a gift because when I'm in that state, and I think a lot of people probably feel this too, it's I can't watch television. I can barely read. And that, that cut-offness is part of the problem. You know, you're not connecting with anything. But here I found that I could connect with Poe, and fortunately, Poe wrote a ton. You know, he was writing to support himself, writing for money. So he churned out stories. There are dozens and dozens of those, and so many poems, huge volumes. Like in the Library of American Editions of Poe, it's thousands and thousands of tissues and pages. So there's plenty to get through. And then I got onto the biographies. Like I had a a loose understanding of Poe's life, but I really didn't know it in detail. And especially as I started to read these bio biographies, I saw that he's a person who dealt with tremendous hardship, the worst things that a, a person can deal with from the word go. You know, before he's three years old, both his parents die. He witnessed his mother dying of tuberculosis, which is an absolutely terrible death. You drown inside your own body, your lungs liquefy for a little child. To observe this 
and this happening to the most important person in the world. By this point, his father has abandoned the family. So it's just his mother. Um, and there's no one to, to, to step in. She's an actress. She's been supporting the family. But when she dies, everything falls apart. And this is a unique time. And I have a child this age now, right now, actually. Um, between the age of about two and a half and three in child development, kids can perceive so much but they can't articulate it. And I think this is really key to understanding Poe's career because he ended up, his great theme, he said, was the death of beautiful women and mournful, never-ending remembrance. I don't think it's a coincidence that that became his great subject because he was at a moment in his life where he understood and couldn't say. Anyway, I mean, that was just the first of the tragedies that kept befalling him. Uh, he was adopted by a wealthy family, but in his teenage years, he developed a very difficult relationship with his foster father, who was kind of an asshole, honestly. Um, he was jealous of Poe and that he never got to go to college and he didn't want to really support Poe in doing those things. In high school, the other, or the equivalent of high school, the other kids looked down on Poe because though he was adopted by this wealthy family, it wasn't a formal relationship. He wasn't going to inherit. And everybody else was, you know, high born around him. And the sons of the wealthiest people in town, very privileged people. And this continued when he went to uh, the early version of UVA. And so it was just kind of one hit after another. He's disowned by his foster father. He goes into the military and he can't really advance at the time because you had to have money to do that or um, have some kind of status. And then when he marries, his wife, his beloved wife, dies of the same disease that killed his biological parents. His great professional dream to own his own magazine, it doesn't work out. He's never able to get the money together to do it. He scrapes a living together despite his genius. You know, selling the, the Raven for $9, selling the Pit and the Pendulum for $10, just making these tiny little amounts of money for these works of genius. Plus, at the time, it's important to understand like the aspect of the literary marketplace and why it was so difficult. Right. There's no copyright law, so anybody can rip you off. And one of the reasons Poe became such a literary innovator, you know, inventing the detective story, inventing the closed room mystery, was because he was innovating as fast as he could so that his intellectual property wouldn't be ripped off, which is an inspiring thing to hear as a writer, that sometimes those marketplace pressures to make money, to try and make a living and support your family, which is what he was doing, um, and to, you know, develop your own original voice. Sometimes you're doing those under the most difficult circumstances. And yet he, in those circumstances, built this incredible body of work that 200 years later is renowned the world over. It has been translated into nearly every language on earth. It has been adapted for every new technology from the earliest radio plays to stage plays to uh, now uh, YouTube shorts, you know, 400 different films films that were made by Roger Corman, films that have been made by incredible actors in this, you know, literally centuries after his death. And despite, so, so I was able to do that in spite of absolutely nothing going right. And sure, he dies by the age of 40. But if you look at like the hit parade that was his life, it's a, it's a wonder to me that he made it to 40. It's a wonder to me that, though he sometimes drank too much, it's a wonder to me that he never that he ever stopped drinking, considering what he was doing, you know, what he was dealing with. So anyway, that's what I got from the biographies. And uh, 
I, I started to tear into some post scholarship then. There's a there's a quite an amount, quite a good bit of it out there. And I found that other people have had this experience too. They've read Poe and they've found him to be kind of a fellow traveler during difficult moments in their lives. And they've come to see him as I did as a kind of heroic figure. In fact, this has always been the French reading of Poe. They regard him as basically a saint. Yes. That was inspiring too. It's kind of a way of finding community. So anyway, I I had this experience of reading Poe. I wrote an essay about it when I was finally able to write again. It was one of the first things I got back to. It's like a 3,000 word essay for a literary website called The Millions. And it, it, it was called uh, Edgar Allan Poe was a broke ass freelancer. <laughs> and I adjusted his freelance rate for inflation and showed that he was earning the same tiny little amounts of money that I was making as a freelancer. And it went viral. And I was able to sell my first book off this and sort of achieve this childhood dream. And it's just so funny to me that Poe had a hand in that, such a giant hand in that. And it was also, for me, a project that very much came out of like a period of intense personal darkness that I wasn't always sure I was going to survive. Uh, That's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I've absolutely had epiphany moments. Wow, I love that so much. I love the beauty of the full circle poetic justice in many ways for you to have taken this inspiration at such a young age and now bring it back. And again, it's there's so many things about hubris to find path of purpose and flow state and how much he went through. And you very much have your tongue in cheek in some of the satire when you're describing it in the book. So again, I recommend everybody could grab this book, but there's so many things in there that are so counterintuitive. They are so, you know, whacking the sacred cows about positivity. And, and, and I love that because there is so much bullshit gaslighting of positivity or guilting yourself into feeling gratitude. And those things are counterintuitive as a human, because if you don't truly feel something and you're trying to coerce yourself and go through the motions, you're literally doing more harm than good because you don't fucking believe it. You don't believe these things are true, but yet you're trying to say, I am happy. I am successful. I'm all these things. And it's like, there is, and again, I I've been through a dark night of the soul as well. So I wouldn't have had any other choice. I had to sit with it for four months. And because I couldn't do anything mm-hmm. else, I had to look at the wound. I had to examine it. It's like, there's nothing else I can do. I can either watch Netflix or play the victim and be pissed off, which I did all those things. But eventually you eventually you go through the five steps of acceptance from Kuba Ross and say, okay, if this is the reality, what am I going to do moving forward? Because I don't really have any other choice. I was suicidal, but I couldn't act on it because of my paralysis. So there was no way out. And that's when you really learn who you are. The way that we conduct ourselves in the face of adversity is an indication of how we will do everything else in our lives. So I love that you had the courage, not that you had any other choice, but that you had the courage to lean into this. You're like, I'm already here. If you're already wet, you don't care about the storm. I'm already here. I'm going to plunge headlong into this thing. And that's where that that beauty and the magic often lies. It's the uh, the answer we seek is found in the adversity that we avoid oftentimes. It's so true. And I mean, I think in some ways, the, all right, the darkness that you experience is extremely intense, but even that intensity is a gift. It is extremely powerful feeling. It is a, a force that's so powerful. It opens you up in a way that doesn't feel comfortable. It feels the opposite of comfortable. You feel intensely vulnerable. 
and yet you are open to uh, certainly in my experience surprising wisdom that comes at you from unexpected angles and can change your life and i mean that very seriously as we would have made sound like people that wouldn't pose a counterintuitive self-help hero when i was trying to sell this book to publishers i heard a lot of like huh this doesn't make any sense. It was a hard sell for those precise reasons. That's the point that wisdom can come from very dark places and you use what comes to you. I think Poe absolutely did that. Like his darkest experiences inform his work. Yeah. And for me, it was very much, a, a, I didn't even know I was absorbing that lesson, but it's what he was teaching me. The other thing I would say about Poe that I think is counterintuitive and that people don't necessarily associate with him is, he could be so funny. Academics debate whether his, you know, his goth horror stories, if they are satires, because they're so over the top at moments, you can't tell. It's kind of like he's winking at you. And that inspired me too as an artist, uh, just thinking of, I love satire. There is, it's not that there's no wisdom in, in traditional self-help. I read a ton of it myself. It's helped me through some dark moments in my life. I've taken a lot from it, from it but at least for me to 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 develop through the worst moments of my life, it took something darker, something that was speaking my language at that moment that I could hear and receive, and that was Poe. Um, so yeah, he, could, he the fact that he was so funny at moments, his letters, especially when he he complains about his bosses, it's also relatable. He complains about being broke. He you know bitches about mutual friends to other friends. Uh, it's just intensely recognizable. And I think it takes you, when you consider what he's going through, like it takes strength of character to crack jokes at that time. And something I think it helped me see, which has now become a way of reading the world is, I often think people are funny in direct proportion to how sad they are because you're the person who needs that joke more than anyone. Um, but even that, it's, a, it's evidence of strength. You know, you are, you're fighting, you're standing up in that moment. and laughing rather than crying as simple as that may seem it's it's a powerful act i think i think it can change things and turn things around slowly it is slow and it's and that's the, the thing about the human animal we will adapt when we have enough time and no other choice and there is the beauty of what you're saying where for those of you that are going to dive into this book and dive into more of Poe's life none of us are saying that you need to be a derelict alcoholic that's in debt we don't we don't we're not <laughs> saying right. that we're not not necessarily but Hey, you know, it's your journey, whatever you need to do, right? Sometimes feeling lost on the path is part of the path. Having said that, there is this idea of, because for so many things, especially in, in the modern like self-help, everything, these things that are so powerful, that are negative are taboo. And it's almost like they want you to completely go around that and not even touch it. But that's where the power is. And even for me, even though my injury happened years ago, I still am tethered to that because it keeps me very honest. It keeps me very humble. It shows me that if I can at least engage even vicariously in this hardship again, that residue has a powerful force. And mm -hmm. you spoke to Ryan Holiday on the Daily Stoic, this, this idea of the Stoics say you can be angry, but you, you don't want to act from anger. And I believe that even that is a, an opportunity to where if I can embrace this anger without turning it into something negative and use it to channel me, because when I was injured, I had nothing else to drive me. I had nothing else to push me on, but yet mm -hmm. I was able to embrace it. Now, 
Long-term, obviously, it's corrosive. Long-term, vicariously, you're hurting people around you. But if you can at least use like even a small amount of that and then apply it in a way where you have better control of it, I find that people that aren't able to control these difficult emotions or these difficult situations, it's an indication that they're not familiar with it. That familiarity of darkness and not being afraid of it, that familiarity of danger and being aware of it and allowing you to inform your decisions, but not necessarily cower in the corner in fear. This is what life mm -hmm. is. This is what a creator does. This is what an artist does. The thing that you were knocked down to your knees on that made you just fall apart is what people want. They want you to bleed onto that page because they want to desperately read that. There are plenty of people that don't want that, but the, the people that are in the place where they need that, damn, that's what we have to write. That's what we have to give them. And when they, when you bear your soul like that, it gives them permission, like you say, to be seen, to feel heard, to feel, oh, you don't always have to feel perfect. Not everything is going to go right. Because what I have found is that if people read this sort of stuff and they kind of browbeat themselves intellectually into it, they paint themselves into a corner. And now when they inevitably run into something difficult, they're like, well, I'm doing something wrong. What's wrong with me? Why do I deserve this? I'm a victim. And that's so disempowering. And I hate to see people put in that place, especially when it's done by their own choice. They're literally holding the hand that's holding them down. And that's not how we move forward in this life, not to create anything that, that we're actually proud of in the end. I think that's so true. I'm nodding with the top half of my body. People can see. I think when I tell my story, it's it's the pat version, and we all know that because our real lives are are messier. It's the story version, and the individual days were so difficult just to get from one end of it to the next one. But with the benefit of hindsight, I can see this force taking shape in my life and and leading me to a place. So while I felt and was from a you know on, on a day to day basis, I was a hot mess. Uh, there was something in that. I was learning something. So even it being in the hot mess state, there's a very rich state. I think Poe's life chose us that he was a hot mess most of the time. And yet, what he was able to draw from it and do with it is just incredible. So I think it teaches us: you use what you have. If you, what you have is you know, poverty and an alcohol problem and a dying wife, that's what you use. Like those are unconventional materials. They're not things anyone would wish for. But when you make use of them to the best of your ability, you can create something so beautiful that it lasts for 17 decades and counting, which is there a better thing to do with our pain? I don't know that there is. Agreed. And again, we use what we have available to us and we may have desires to have something else but as you say what's there because there's different schools of thought but if we write what we know that's why if we write from our true voice our true experiences that's what comes through and so that's all that he knew i'm sure it would appear incredibly trite if you tried to write something that was sunshines and rainbows and hey let's go carpe that diem and as opposed to carpe <laughs> the the noctum is this so it's it's tremendous yeah, I think it's something I continue to learn from this experience, just to use the darkness tale. You know, sometimes you can't fight it. Sometimes it's just the state you're in. And that too is an extremely rich place to be. I wouldn't say, certainly like when I'm in those depths of depression, I can't say that I'm grateful for it. But having survived it, I am grateful for having survived it and having had the experience of it. So if people aren't in the exact place yet where they're able to be grateful and to see the meaning, I completely understand that. 
I wouldn't, you know, it's important not to put yourself under so much pressure that you can't see what you do have. That's the truth. And, and again, it also teaches us that there are seasons, there are phases, there are points of resistance, clearly. But in my mind, I found that the more that I try to get away from that, the more that it pursues me. So it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. So if I'm already going to be doing this, I might as well lean towards it because the further it's begun, the further it's done, the sooner I can begin, the sooner I can get through this. It doesn't always make it easier, but again, you're just putting that one step in front of the other, whether it be as a writer where you're staring at that blank page or you're, you've got your, your outline and now you're like, you look back on what you've written over the last week and you're like, this is all garbage. This is all trash. Nobody's going to read this. I, I'm just going to completely scrap this and try to do something else. That in and of itself is the lesson. That in and of itself is the thing that is forcing us to develop these other skill sets. And, and again, he didn't really have any other option. He, this was what he had. He had tried to do many different jobs and tried to be in the military, tried a lot of things. And again, he was a, a born, um, entrepreneur in many ways so he was forced to to be in this place absolutely i think that there's even there's messages for entrepreneurs in Poe's life which is another counterintuitive lesson because he definitely he was a literary entrepreneur academics call him that um, and the fact even that you know given the copyright law and the structure of the literary marketplace at the time the fact that he was able to earn any money from his writing when magazines did not have to pay for material at the time they could simply pirate it the fact that he was able to earn anything, even like a poverty line level of income, that itself is amazing in the context. And as there's a whole section of the book that goes into the different entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial lessons that there's a lot of imposed life, fake it till you make it, resume fudging, very understandable. Uh, <laughs> and he fudged, he fudged a lot. Yeah, he exaggerated he a lot. He fudged a lot. Oh. But, you know, it, it served him, I think. And it, it shows us that even the greats, even people who we regard now as you know, legends, they were engaged in the same sort of day-to-day scrappiness that the rest of us are engaged in. And that's such a relief to hear. It is. It's not easy for anyone. When I um, I got to have uh, breakfast with Stephen Prestel when I was in Los Angeles last time, and he's almost 80. And to this day, he's like, I wonder if this book's going to sell. I wonder if this if people are going to like this. I'm like... Oh gosh! You're Stephen Pressfield, and he said it doesn't matter if I don't deliver. So, even that humility then, because this was right before uh, Government Cheese came out, which is so. If you've read The War of Art, he talks about that those the origin stories. So that's that's the book that I've wanted to read for years, and literally, you know, he had to get pushed to to put that thing into play. It's an indication again that it it is difficult, and there is the process, and it's. But at the same time, it is so rewarding once we're there. And it he uses that resistance as a compass, which I feel that's very much what you've done. And it's it's a very brave way. And I believe that that empowers others when they read your work, when they hear your story, when they feel the vulnerability and the transparency in the way that we're speaking right now. That's what people need more of. There's plenty of rah-rah fake bullshit. And now that AI is being unleashed on the world, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is essentially a glorified, you know, search engine on steroids. You're going to get even more of that, like senseless path, even more of that hollow, unearned wisdom, as Jung would say. I mean, it's out there. So, what you do, what I'm trying to create, people will want more of that because it will stand head and shoulders above 
It's very easy to grab a bunch of quotes from great people already and then connect the dots and say, here's the three steps of this. It's like, that's kind of vapid. I mean, I'm sure that we see there's a, there is a market for it, but I would rather at least be honest to my, my voice. And I think that you following your voice is what's led you to the success that you have now and the happiness that you're experiencing in many ways. It was something I, to be an author was something I wanted for so long. One of the things Poe said, uh, he said true originality lies in combination with mm-hmm. taking unusual things and marrying almost like matchups as we understand them now, yes, like yes. you do matchups or something like that. And that's something I've really taken to heart too. Like if you apply a self-help lens to Poe, like you just get immediate humor and immediate like sparkiness from the idea. And right now I'm finding myself at the bottom of the mountain again. So it's such a relief to hear Stephen Pressfield say that. (laughs) At the bottom of the mountain with an unusual combination that I am trying to sell and trying to figure out how to like make the business case for something that's not quite been done before and not been packaged in this way, certainly. And it's just as difficult. It's the last damn time. And every day as I struggle to, you know, it's difficult to write these things too. Because if, you know, is it, sounds pathological but it's true but like things that haven't been done are harder to do than things that have been done so here i am again like struggling to write it and to sell it and having lived through this once before like nothing could give me more strength than that and just knowing that this is how it happened the last time over a couple of years and a very bumpy process that had a lot of low lows and some high highs um, here i am again which is Honestly, it's a, it's a little bit of a relief in itself. It's like, oh, maybe this never gets easier. Maybe this is just the road. Robert Greene said the same thing when I interviewed him for his, that new book that he's working on, The Law of the Sublime. He's like, I said, when's it going to be out? He says, before I die. And he says, but it feels like it's <laughs> going to be a long time still. So again, that process is... And I also want people to appreciate you're already a successful writer and your first book does amazing. It, it sells everywhere. But now, in some ways, there's even more pressure on you to deliver, right? I was talking to a um, well-known musician, and I said, is it really true, like, the curse of the sophomore, the sophomore album? Yeah. He said, yes. Oh, it's absolutely true. You feel like you, there's a lot of internally pre- applied pressure, too. And uh, assumptions. You're, you're a writer. You know this. I think a lot of people who listen to your podcast will have been experienced in some kind of creative endeavor, business or otherwise. Just that people assume that things are easy for you now. Assume that because this one thing was a success, that the next one's easy. That's not the current state of publishing. And it's not really the artistic experience of these things either, because each book is a different book. And I hate that, but it is the process. You know, it's just, you got to dig in anyway. Yeah, we have to do the work and we have to be honest with that process. I would love to go through the whole book, but I know that we don't have time and I want people to buy it. But there were many things I've written down, but this idea of hubris being the path to life purpose, we hear so many times that hubris is the stiff neckedness and this idea of having ego and arrogance or chips on our shoulders. Can you give us a little bit of insight and elaborate on how Poe was able to do that in a way that made him incredibly productive in many ways? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how Poe experienced tragedy from his earliest beginnings. And the other thing that Poe had going for him, besides the tragedy, is the fact that he had a giant ego from the word go. And granted, you could say, I mean, he was he was a genius, I think, you know, truly on the, like an exalted level Agreed. that I struggle even to understand. Um, 
and relate to in a certain way. But anyway, yeah, he was convinced of his own greatness. Yes, he was. And the reason that I, I say this served him and it can serve us is because, you know, because he was poor, because he was an orphan, um, because he was a guy, you know, who didn't own property at a time where pro- even like voting rights were tied to property and that sort of thing. Um, he was often told to like stay in his lane, you know, don't try for these, you know, don't, don't undertake these grand endeavors. And yet he believed in himself so much that it never really penetrated. And for the rest of us who have been told for whatever reason, maybe you're a member of a certain group that's told to stay in their lane or like this path isn't open to you. This isn't something that people like you do. To have that hubristic sense of confidence can really, you know, will keep you going at moments where, you know, otherwise you would quit. So I kind of think this is why Poe is a counterintuitive source of wisdom in that, like, you can see how his ego served him when you look at his life, because anybody else would have given up his position. I try to cultivate a giant ego in myself. I don't, I don't think I have it. No, it comes across. <laughs> it's like, ah, I can't even deal with this okay. woman. Her head's so big. It's not even fitting on the screen. Come on. Now you have to lean back more, Kat. Seriously. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's, there's something I think that in our toughest moments, we can take from that of like, that there is value in self-confidence and even um, believing yourself capable of great things. Maybe you've never been told that. Maybe it's, you know, I always think of myself as like from a, a very generic background. I was a middle child, religious family. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't set up for what the life I've tried to have necessarily. I'm not claiming adversity, just like it was very middle of the road, a lot of television, a lot of generic material. <laughs> and uh, to to strive for what I, I strive for was something not in that world. If that makes any sense, you know, it was just like, it was not the accustomed path. And it's still not because it's like, this isn't a grand claim about my own life, anybody's life. You're trying to be an artist, you're trying to be an entrepreneur, creator of any kind. Like the path isn't necessarily set out for you. You have to believe that you can do it. It's not always an easy thing. Uh, usually if the path before us is is easily well-maintained, it's not our path. We're just sort of going down somebody else's and then we're going to find that place of disappointment or realize that it's not a good fit. And I, I want to give you credit. I don't want you to downplay your adversity because adversity is relative and it's not a competition. And you went through some tremendous difficulty and you had the courage and the wherewithal to lean towards that and turn it into something that's literally changing the world. I hope so that somebody else hears that depression, that the, even the gravest episodes of depression can be a productive state in their way. Don't have to be what they can be, that there is some kind of light and possibility, even because you are suffering this, then that'll make it all worth my time and anybody else's, I think, just because that's such a, you're in this state that it's the opposite of those things or that you're convinced of the opposite of those things. I I mean, I kind of think like, I'm not a scientist, don't have a background in the sciences or neuroscience or anything like that, but there has to be a reason that depression survived from one generation to the next. Like, it's, I don't think it's atavistic. I think it has some kind of evolutionary purpose for maybe we're meant to have these intense states of contemplation and stillness. Even if our soul is screaming and it's the last thing that we want, maybe there's a reason that this is like a key feature of humanity and persists from one generation to the next. Like, 
you know, you can, it was called melancholia in Poe's day mm-hmm. and it was identified, you know, uh, in much earlier texts and so on, certainly the Stoics and in the Bible, you can find it uh, mentions of like the dark night of the soul is a hundred years old concept, yes. but I think it has purpose. Um, for not for me, for other people, and it's just it's it's a matter of finding that when it's not always clear, but keeping on um, and enduring. That's a kind of fortitude too. Like it, it's just it's a muscle you're developing, even if you don't know it. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about that is, again, as as I said before, that's going to make you a better mother, a better role model for your for your child, a better wife, a better everything, better author, and that's what again people need more of. All of these other. Um, as I keep saying, these hollow lessons, I think people are eventually getting sick of it. It's all over the place and people need something that has the substance that you do. There was this portion that you talked about where Poe got into this flow state and it was more impactful than any drug or any alcohol could be, laudanum, anything. Could you describe to us what that is? And then secondarily, can you tell us about what your process is as a writer and how that kind of comes in. We were talking about G. Michael Hobbs, our mutual admiration for him. And he says, I do not use an outline. I just go to this place and I just vomit all these things out there because he feels that there is one side of our brain. It's like, I am in outline mode. I have this, this, and this, and here's my bullet points. And it kind of robs that the writer of the curiosity and the ability to kind of go into these areas that are uncharted and, again, very robust if we have the courage to step in. I absolutely agree. I love hearing about his process. Yeah, 40 books. And he's self-published for the first bunch of them. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. you're not a real author. You're self-published. He was like, well, I'm outselling everybody else. So what do you want from me? It's like, it doesn't, we can do it any way we want. Yeah, right. I really admire that. I think for Poe, obviously, you know, we've talked about all the difficulties in his life. Just the day-to-day struggle to pay the rent. His letters are full of things like the struggle to buy dinner, the struggle to pay the rent that month, begging people for money, just the day-to-day difficulties of his life, which is not underestimated. Very, very hard. And uh, I think for Poe, like, he has his reputation as an alcoholic. I think it's overblown, just not to bore anyone too much with the history, but this is a time in American history where people, white men essentially, consume more alcohol, alcohol um, at the time than at any other period of American history. I calculated in the book that the average American man was having five drinks a day at the time. So like everybody needed a dry wary. Uh, Poe was more of a sporadic drinker in moments of despair. He took to it. I think we should try to have compassion for that considering what he was dealing with and the fact that there wasn't any, you know, Wellbutrin at the time or Brene Brown. And he also had a reputation as being a, a user of opium, which that is a completely overblown thing. He does not. He had okay. maybe one or two incidents with laudanum use, but it was directly suicidal at the time, not a like casual or recreational mm-hmm. use of it. So the fact that he references those things so much in his fiction, those were just tropes of the time, like conventions that appeared in a lot of stories. I think his real drug that really worked for him was what we call flow state now, which is, are these moments, uh, hopefully long moments of intense concentration and engagement with what you're doing. And it's something that it's a state that's accessible, certainly to artists, but I think to anybody who has intense focus, like it could happen when you are working out, absolutely it could happen on a run, it could happen when you're doing yoga, uh, it can happen when you're working on a business plan or you're, I mean, I think even accountants, accountants probably experience 
for Poe, it was happening when he was composing. And so I also don't think it's a coincidence that when he was writing, like he was probably happier than at any moment of his life because everything else drops away and you were just intensely engaged with this thing that is fascinating you and that draws you out of yourself, but also incorporates so much of you. And I think that fortunately, the thing about flow state is that it doesn't leave you hungover. It doesn't wreck a family, generally speaking, um, and doesn't get you fired. So it has a lot to offer all of us. I know that my own kind of like with my story of being so depressed and then getting into Poe, I think that was the beginning of the state of flow with this particular project Yes, where it is so, it is such a blessing at that moment to find something that you can pay attention to that you can engage with. And I don't care if it's professional wrestling or it's the stories of Edgar Allan Poe, like if you can pay attention, that itself is a gift. That's where like the gold, the gold of experience and art come from. And, uh, yeah, in my own life, it is to be, I have a lot of things that I love, you know, I'm crazy about my kid and so on, but uh, the moments I spend like at four in the morning, like at my desk, intensely engaged, total silence, darkness outside the windows, happiest moments of my life by far. And all I'm doing is hunching like a T-Rex over a laptop, you know? Yeah, it's the best. It's absolutely the best. It's better than any of the, anything else I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So for you, it's early in the morning. Do you have some caffeine first? Do you have food first? Are you fasted? Have you done some sort of physical activity prior? How do you prime yourself? Or do you like, it's four o'clock, the boy's going to be up in a few hours. I better start banging this out. I love it. Oh, that. this is, it's to, like, I wake up before the rest of my family <laughs> and I slip out of bed trying desperately not to make it sound. Uh, I don't want to wake anybody up. I'm trying to get my time. And I, I'm not a big breakfast person. So I, I drink really crappy coffee, this instant mess cafe, which I know is shockingly awful and people hate. <laughs> anyway, I just find it's now my productivity drug. It's very mild, I noticed. Like, so it's not a big jolt of caffeine. You can have a lot of it without getting over caffeinated. So anyway, I like it. It's it's very gentle for what it is. And so I, I, I you know make some of that and I go into my office. I don't listen to music. I I will put in my AirPods initially because you can get the noise cancellation. Mm. So the cat can't bug me and uh, then I'll take them out eventually because I know my son's going to be waking up. But yeah, a couple of hours. Wow. I feel like I'm on top of the world by the end of that, no matter whether it's been productive in the sense of like, have I advanced my new book proposal? Have I written a chapter? Have I even written anything that's particularly good? Like sometimes it, but I'm in moments where I'm not connecting with the project. Sometimes it's just very long journal entries and kind of a mindless state of just writing what's happening to me, what I'm thinking about random bits of conversation or something that I'm reading and what I'm feeling about it. Even that, just like the engagement process is something that makes me so much happier. And I find too, aside from my instant coffee, I also love, um, I write in Word and there's focus mode and Word and the rest of everything just drops away. If they ever retire that, I'm just going to have to like not write anymore because <laughs> I need it. Nothing else quite approximates that. So yeah, those two that's absolutely wonderful the start to the day like i'll exercise later try to do that every single day i'll make meals i'll you know tend to my house and and the rest of it but uh if i've done that by 7 a.m like the day is made and that's just a wonderful feeling yeah you've already won and and i love your your pragmatic application i love tim ferris i have all the respect in the world for huberman and all these people but i don't have the luxury of fetishizing a morning routine 
if I travel, if I'm doing whatever it is, um, even Pressfield talks about, you know, he evokes the muse and he does all these things. He still does those things, but he does it like, it's almost like taking a breath and now he's in it. And mm -hmm. he was saying that he would, you know, if he could get four hours in when he was in the pocket, like that's where it's great. But he said that with his schedule now, with everything he's doing, if he can get an hour or two oh, of that focused, conscious, like writing, that does it. The beauty of it is, as you're saying, even if we're writing something that doesn't feel as if it's going to be the next book, it's it's just like meditation. It's just like yoga. It's practice. You're honing mm -hmm. the instrument. You're keeping that blade sharp. And as you were saying, you make that those comments about that conversation. The cadence of those prose may be the very thing that inspires you to create this other ancillary thing. And as you say, there's Venn diagrams of things that are overlapping. And now you create it in a way that's very uniquely your own. I tried to imitate other guitarists when I was little and I couldn't do it. But in the process of stumbling and making horrendous noise, I was able to find some things that sounded neat. And all of a sudden, I didn't sound like these other people, but I I did have a little bit of my own voice. And that's how it was with, with writing. I was at a speaking event because I didn't want to write a book because I knew it was torture. And a woman at the back of the room was walking back and forth wanting after the Q&A, wanting to talk to me. So I go engage her. I say, hey, I'm Marcus. And she says, I want to buy your book. And just like wags her finger at me. I'm, I say, ma'am, I don't have a book. She's an older woman. She looks at me like I had insulted her because what had happened was she has a, a granddaughter who's going through a divorce, going through adversity. And she said, if you had a book, I could give this to her. It would help her. Mm. Basically saying, how dare you have this story? How dare you go on stage and tell people about these things and not have this? It was like, a, I, I felt almost irresponsible after she told me that. And it was like, shit. But the beauty of that was it made me put down everything on paper. It made me not mm -hmm. fall away from what happened. I had 80 things that were important, but you have to cut that in half. But then when you have 40 ideas, and now you say, these go into this sort of bucket, these go into this bucket, from my experience, and now all of a sudden, it's not as if it writes itself, but you get a general idea. And then as you endeavor on the path, that's where the discovery is. That's where the magic happens when you face either resistance or friction. When we allow the resistance to crush us, we that friction is ever-present. But if we lean into it, we turn that friction into traction if we're willing to step towards it. But again, just like you're saying, getting up, getting it done, it doesn't matter what the day, it doesn't matter what the weather's like, you're up, you've got your cheap coffee. In some ways, that in and of itself is the thing that kind of reminds you of this kind of grunt mentality. It's like, I, I'm not drinking this luxurious latte from Starbucks. I'm drinking this thing here because this is what is fueling me in this moment. Absolutely. It's not fancy and it doesn't have to be. In fact, like maybe the fanciness is a crutch. So I should probably have better taste in coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say too, like what you said makes me think so hard of like, it's so true that often ideas don't necessarily come to us fully formed, like in their final package. In fact, it very rarely happens that way. But for me, what you're saying too, it, one of my, the first viral, the first article that I had go viral and it was one of my first national pieces too it was it was about a millennials inside hustle and i wrote it for courts in 2016 and it did more than anything else i've written since in terms of shares and and so on anyway that was just a random thought that i had written in my journal and that i have to come back across i was like the real reason that people engage in side hustles is because it's 
it's a bridge and a hedge. It's a hedge against their existing job. It's a bridge into what they think will be their dream job. Because I was writing from my own experience, you know, doing my journalism on the side because I couldn't make a living at it and having a corporate day job, you know, a lot of situations. Yeah, you don't necessarily know what your the usefulness of what you're putting down. But if you have that process that you can trust and you're recording those ideas, later on, Ryan Holiday, who's such a nice guy, I was just like, make a damn spreadsheet. <laughs> like, All right, fine, I will. <laughs> now I do that and it is a better system. I recognize that. But yeah, there's something to just recording and not judging in the moment, but letting it come. And then maybe later you're able to combine or able to develop what you need to. And there's something there that can really speak to you and others. Absolutely. I could talk to you all day. I've loved our time. Where can we go to support you? Where can we go to get the book? Where can we go to stay connected to all the incredible things you're working on and the stuff that you're working towards as well? Thank you. Um, so Pope for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru uh, is anywhere you buy books. It's the only Poe title in the humor section of Barnes & Noble. <laughs> it, it's on Amazon. I have to say that is it's the cheapest, I think. It's an independent bookstore. It's, if people want to go to my website, there are signed copies at my awesome local bookstore. Beautiful. And they're uh, no extra charge. So it's possible to order from there. My website is just my name, katherinebadmagear.com. I write a substack that's free and always will be free. It's a lot of the same flavor we've been talking about, dark self-help. I kind of joke it's gothic self-help. And there's a lot for uh, artists, writers, creators, both the business side of this and uh, the artistic side. I'm really interested in that intersection. Some history too. So uh, that's called Poke and Save Your Life. You can find it on Substack. And uh, yeah, I'm everywhere else. My Instagram isn't very interesting. <laughs> Uh, just pictures of my kids sometimes and the cat. Uh, <laughs> but I'd love to meet people there. And I'm also like my email address is on my website. I love hearing from people. So just they should feel free to reach out. Yeah. If you've, if you've enjoyed our conversation, then you'll enjoy her Substack, all of her work. I bought two copies of your book and then I've listened to the Audible as well. To me, I have a book that's like the one that I just beat the shit out of. It's like the workbook where I underline and I highlight and I have all the dog ears. Mm -hmm. And then there's the the nice ones that, if you have one that's signed or whatever, it's like, that's the one that you, you keep and you, you know, you mm -hmm. show and you're like, Oh, look, I've got this signed copy. And then you keep that up there. And that way I can have it. I'm going to send you one of these. Oh, I appreciate that. But at any rate, thank you so much for your time, for your, your work, for what you're doing and for continuing to show us the importance of not only Gothic humor and satire, but how it can truly help us in our time of need. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the show. It's Berlin to be here. Thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.